The following is a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. Grace City exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. For more info, visit gracecitydenver.com. Today, we will be reading from John 2, 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Have you noticed that our culture has weaponized Jesus? What I mean is people, whether they believe in Jesus or not, often they'll quote Jesus or they'll invoke the name of Jesus to say what Jesus would be for or what he'd be against. They invoke the name of Jesus to say, this is what he would do, this is what he would not do. And I think sometimes they're probably correct and sometimes they're not. But it's, it's like the final stamp on an argument to simply say, well, Jesus would never talk like that or Jesus would always do this. People who have never even read the Gospels are self-proclaimed experts on how Jesus would respond to every hot-button issue. I hear it all the time. This is how Jesus would vote. And it's like, well, what do you know of Jesus? Well, it's like the guy on the cross, right? You know, and they know very little except this notion that underlies a lot of people's thinking today is that whatever Jesus is up to, he is gentle, meek, and mild. And of course, loving. Everyone knows Jesus is loving. But often we think of that love in terms of a very superficial, sentimental, saccharine kind of love, not a truly deep rooted and fully orbed love. So one of the first things I want to ask you this morning is, does your view of Jesus, right now as you sit here this morning, does your personal view of Jesus make space for stories like the one we just read? So in your mental construct of this is what Jesus is like, these are the things that he would do, do you make space for a Jesus who gets angry and who offends people? And I would argue deliberately offends people. Do you have space for that? I think often the, the Jesus of today is this just kind of mushy, inclusive, tolerant, I love you just the way you are, you don't have to change a thing kind of Jesus. And one of my first proposals to you this morning is that I think the real Jesus, the historic Jesus, is far more interesting, far more complex, far more robust than many of our modern caricatures of him. And we encounter that kind of Jesus in the story today. 
So one of the ways I'm thinking today is that our culture typically thinks of love and anger as almost polar opposites. And we do this a few ways. We think, you know, if you love someone, of course you won't get angry. Of course you won't get upset. Of course you won't disrupt and offend them because you love them and you care for them and you're kind. And a kind person would never do that. And on the other side of that, we think, as I see someone who is angry or they're worked up over something or they're outraged about something, of course they're not the kind, loving kind of person. They're not a gentle person. And what I think John is showing us this morning at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, kind of this theme, I think he's showing us when and why love gets angry. Jesus shows us when and why love gets angry. And I'm going to go through this story, and I think John is showing us these five things. He's going to show us the rage of Jesus, the rebuke of Jesus, the riddle of Jesus, the ruin and resurrection, and that's one point tied together, and then the reconciliation. Okay, so let's recount this. So you've just heard the story read, and here's the picture. I want to kind of paint a picture for you, get you kind of immersed in that scene, get your senses alive and awake. Whatever happened before you came in this morning, okay, we are, we are going up to the Temple Mount during Passover. And Passover was the greatest, the highest, the most important feast of the Jewish people. It was the feast that commemorated that all those years ago, God had delivered the Jewish ancestors from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And he'd led them out and he'd made them an independent people once again after generation after generation after generation of bondage. And so all these people are coming up to Jerusalem and this, this town really that would have been probably between 100 to 200,000 people on an ordinary day would swell in size, some historians say, to over 2 million people at Passover. So you think of that, you think of an ancient city that's designed for 150,000 people and suddenly 2 million people are pouring into the streets, all trying to go through a few key transactions that, are, that that festival or feast are built around in a short period of time. So it's already chaotic, it's already noisy, it's already crowded, all of that is happening just by default. But secondly, the, the temple that's referred to here was known as Herod's temple. So King Herod, the Tetrarch, to ingratiate himself to the Jewish people, he undergoes this massive building complex. And he starts building, and, and as we hear the word temple, maybe you're thinking of a sanctuary, a building. And it was that, but let's put those pictures up here. Because he's, here are three models of what that temple would have looked like in the days of Jesus Christ. And what you see is not only that massive temple here on the left or in the center, you can see it in each of these views, but you notice it's a temple complex. It is not a building, it is buildings. And it is porticos and colonnades and, and it just spreads on and on. There are gates and walls. And you can easily see how these giant open plazas would become a marketplace. A place where people come and they buy and they sell and they trade and that's exactly what's going on. So I want you to picture not, not this tiny little building like the old tabernacle in the wilderness, but on top of Mount Moriah in the middle of Jerusalem, this high point of Jerusalem, all the Jews literally coming up to the Passover 
and sending at least a representative of their families into this temple complex to get ready for Passover. Um, that brings us to kind of a discussion of like, who are these money changers? Who are these merchants? Well, as people come from all over the Roman Empire to buy their sacrifice and then make their sacrifice at Passover, historians tell us that you know, a lot of different kinds of coins were used throughout the empire. But as they come from all over that empire, they come to Jerusalem, there was only one coin that was accepted for the temple tax at Passover, and that was Tyrian silver, and it was a shekel. And it was 94% pure. Like we can still find these through archaeology. And they would say, whatever coinage you're bringing, you would first go to the money changers and say, well, here's my money. I'm exchanging it for your Tyrian silver shekel. Then I'm taking your silver shekels and I can go and buy not just any old animal, but I have to buy animals that the priesthood at that time have said, these animals we've declared blemish-free. And so... Everyone at Passover is going through at least two transactions. You're going there, you're standing in a big long line, waiting to change your money into the accepted coinage. Just as if you traveled to a foreign country now, you might go to an exchange office as you land at the airport or something, exchange your money so you have hard money to work with. So they're doing that, then going and buying their sacrifice. That's the background. That's where it was. Now, what happens next? And the story leads off with the rage of Jesus. And I want to show you, first of all, what he did, but I also want to show you why. Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So let's not water this down. Let's just put ourselves there. And you're one of those people standing in line and Jesus is walking through one of these plazas and he's looking at the animals and he's looking at the money changers tables and he's hearing the commotion of what's going on and he's seeing the filth of what these animals are doing in that temple area. And it's, I just picture him walking along and just little scraps of rope that were previously holding an oxen here or a sheep there. He's grabbing onto them. Because it says he's walking through here and he is braiding a whip. Now, a whip is not a defensive weapon. Okay, a whip is to hit things. There is at least, and I'm not saying Jesus hit people or didn't hit people, I don't know. There's at least a threat of physical harm in what Jesus is premeditating. And there's no way around the fact that as he's braiding this and then comes up to some of the tables, the terms that are used here are that he dumps their coins and flips over their tables. You're like, that was kind of dramatic. That's kind of noisy. Somebody's got a mess to clean up. And that's the whole point. As he's dumping coins and it's, it's noisy and it's disruptive and it's offensive. And if you're standing there in one of those lines waiting for your chance, you're like, what's, what's with the unhinged guy who's losing it and making a scene and making a mess that somebody else is going to have to come clean up? That's what he's doing. And I don't want to, again, bring that down to like, well, I just... It's probably hyperbole in some way. You've got to put yourself there and see a, a physically active Jesus doing this thing. And not once, but over and over and over again, just kind of losing it. 
on whoever these people are. Why? Why? Let me share with you three theories, and I'll say that all three of these, I think, have merit. There may be a kernel of truth, or maybe maybe he did it for all of these reasons, but why? Theory number one is Jesus was upset at extortion and greed in the name of God. Okay, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell a very similar story of Jesus cleansing the temple, not at the beginning of his ministry, like John says, but at the very end of his ministry. So the last Passover, when Jesus goes up to the temple mount to basically lay down his life and be crucified outside the city gates, it says he does something very similar. Are these two separate incidents? Are they the same? They're just telling it in different chronology. We don't know. But what's important I want to point out to you is Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Jesus says this when he does what I just did. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. And so with that additional context, you can kind of hear maybe what was going on a couple years later and probably what was going on a couple years later was happening here. That as he goes in, he sees money changers whose scales, their weights, were unjust. And so every single person of these millions of people who are coming to make an exchange, they're skimming just a little bit or a lot off the top because you got everybody between a rock and a hard place. They have to use the Tyrian silver shekel and you're the money changer. They have to do what you're doing and so you can inflate. And same with the sellers, the merchants. You can say, well, I could get a sheep in my city that looks every bit as blemish as free as that. I'm just making something up. But for $1,000 and I come here and it's 2,500. I say, well, you got to buy our sheep or you're not making a sacrifice for your family and your sins are not covered by our great God that we worship. And I'm saying it's, it's very, very possible that something like that was going on here. And you can see how that would upset Jesus. People are coming to worship the God who saves and you are extorting, and you are using religion in the name of God to be fat cats, to simply profit yourselves. A second theory, Jesus was upset at the commodification or the commercialization of worship. Those are two big words, but they're important words. Commodification, when I say that, I mean commodification is taking something either that once was free or transcendent, and turning it into a commodity. In other words, something that you simply buy and sell. Commercialization, which is a similar idea, means, and this is from Oxford, commercialization is the process of managing or running something principally for financial gain. And I think you could see some of that going on here. You've taken worship, which is free in a sense, which is transcendent and holy, and anyone can do it anywhere at any time, and you're saying, nope, it's a commodity now. You want to do it, you buy and sell through us. And again, everyone's coming, and instead of being able to focus on the God who saves, they're worked up, like, how do, I, how do I save up enough money throughout the year to even get up there and buy the stuff that I need to lead my family through this feast to celebrate God? I think that would make Jesus angry. You've taken the gospel, God saves helpless people. And you make it a profit-making scheme for some and an immense burden to others. That would make Jesus mad. A third theory, and these kind of overlap, but Jesus was upset 
at the barrier to the Gentiles. And if we can get the diagrams of the temple back up here for just a moment, I want to point out a couple things about this architecture. So you see the, you see the tallest building in the middle here, and that is, that is what would be considered the temple, the, the, the sanctuary. That's, that's the holy place, and in the very back of that was the holy of holies where the high priest would enter once a year. Do you see that first courtyard right around that tall structure? And it's got kind of the parapets on each corner. Jewish men could go there, but only Jewish men. And as you come through those gates and down those circular steps, that little area would be called the court of women. And Jewish women could go that far, but not any further. And then if you step outside of that, and then you see a low wall, and you see it in this diagram over here to the left, probably the best. See that low wall that kind of goes around? There are signs every so many feet that basically say, a Gentile cannot proceed beyond this fence, or you will be responsible for your own death. So everything outside of that lower fence will be called the court of the Gentiles. And this is not something that, that God himself created saying, let's have all these special courts. And if you're, if you're a Jewish male, you can go here. And if you're a Jewish woman, you slot in under that. If you're any kind of Gentile, you're kind of down here getting the leftovers. But, but that's what human beings had done to the worship of Yahweh. Now, what I want you to notice from these pictures is where is all this commotion taking place? Where is all the buying and selling and bartering? And even if it were fair, which I don't think it probably was, where is all that chaos and all that cacophony happening? It's all happening in the court of Gentiles. And so a theory goes like this, and I think it's a valid one. Jesus walks in, he comes up the, the, the outside gate, which is 45 stories tall. It's the, the corner of the temple. If you're trying to look for scale, this is many, many, many football fields wide, large, and 45 stories tall above the valley below. And he comes through that gate into this complex, and this is what he encounters so a Gentile has made the effort to travel to Jerusalem at Passover and at least begin to explore who is this God of the Jews? Is, is he worthy of my life? How can I learn about him? How, does he cover my sin like he covers the Jews' sins? And even if they're just curious and they walk into this area, it's just noisy and there's stuff going on. And it's just like everything's screaming, go away. Like, this too is our place. You don't belong here. And I believe that would make Jesus very, very angry. Let's dial this in a little bit more. Because the second point I said is verse 16, the rebuke of Jesus. So now he's going to speak. And he told those who sold the pigeons, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Okay, so was there swindling going on? Probably. Had the worship of Yahweh been wildly commercialized, it, it would appear so, was it nearly impossible for Gentiles to draw near and be reconciled to God? Absolutely. But when Jesus finally speaks a word of rebuke, what's the heart of his complaint? He says, you have turned my father's house into a house of trade. It's literally the word marketplace. So notice Jesus was outraged that any of this stuff was happening there. And it's less about the practices. He's not directly condemning the practices. He's condemning their presence 
in the temple in the first place. Because what he's saying in a sense is there is a place for a market. I mean, the city needs markets. But you have taken my father's house, a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a house of profit. So let me give you a little illustration. That's like today. So I want you to imagine a church of a thousand people. Just I'm going to use round numbers. A church of a thousand people and the, the pastoral team gets together and says, hey, we're going to walk our congregation through a study on the attributes of God. Okay, good. It's great. It's great. And they go a step further and they say, and um, we've chosen this particular book to kind of help us walk us through those attributes. Like God is love. God is justice. God is merciful. God is compassionate. He's true. All these things. Okay, so we've chosen this book and we're going to walk through this book together. Okay, no problem, really. But he goes a step further and says, um, so this book is, is $20 on Amazon and um, don't go get your own copy, okay? Um, we're gonna buy a thousand copies for everyone in the church, each to have his own copy or her own copy. And, uh, and then we're gonna resell them to you uh, for $100. Um, and, and trust us, okay? Just trust us. Like you need to get your special blessed copy you know, Pastor Matt will sign it, put your name to it, you know. But that copy, that's the only copy that you can have for us to go through this study on the attributes of God together. It's the same kind of stuff. It is, it's grifting. And Jesus would come and say, get that garbage out of my house. What are you doing? So studying the attributes of God, great. Even going through a book together, that's fine. But what are you doing to take me and the God who saves and to turn it into something that's, that's more about you, more about pushing some people, well, I don't have 100 I get $20 for the book. No, nope, you gotta have $100 for the book. Or do you see the example here lately? And I, I didn't dive into the details, but I started typing this morning in Google, Denver Pass, and it fills in Denver Pastor Cryptocurrency. Anybody see this story? So pastor in jail because he's basically selling his congregation a false cryptocurrency, made over a million dollars for himself. Jesus would come and say, get it out of my house. Remember how I said the Synoptic Gospels all have Jesus saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7. And in the context of Isaiah 56, God is talking and he's saying, I gladly welcome the foreigner. I gladly welcome the eunuch to my house to come and to meet me and to know me and to find their sins forgiven and to find that they are reconciled to the same God. But he says, we got a problem. I called my house a house of prayer for all peoples, but that's impossible in this setup. It's not a house of prayer for all people, is it? Because you've erected your own barriers and you've, you've gone into such self-serving commercialization of this whole religion that it's not a house of prayer for all people and all these people that want to be reconciled with God or at least take the first step to understanding what that might look like in their lives can't do it. So I would say the presence of the money changers and the merchants was contradicting the very purpose 
for the temple's existence in the first place. Because at least in that era, and this is no longer true, but in that era, God says, all peoples of the earth, you're invited to come and to pray and to repent of your sins and to find forgiveness through sacrifice and the restoration of fellowship with God. The temple is meant to facilitate true worship, not to frustrate people and to fleece them. And here's kind of the key. What we need to see here is it is the love of Christ for broken sinners that fuels his anger. And he's saying, how dare you do anything that hinders people, broken people, from coming home to the Father? Does that make sense? Maybe what they were doing was okay-ish, per se. Maybe it was really, really bad. But he's saying, nothing is okay if it's hindering people from coming home to the Father. And that brings us to this riddle, verses 18 through 21. This is a fascinating part of this exchange between Jesus and some of the Jews. And I want you to note, by the way, they don't question the rightness or the wrongness of Jesus' behavior. As, as outrageous as it was, what do they question? They question, what authority do you have to do what you just did? They say, what, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 18 in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's enigmatic, okay? That's a riddle. Because you know that everyone that's sitting there and they're, they're here in this temple mount and they're standing in the shadow of this massive building. And he says, destroy this temple and three days I'll raise it up again. And you know every single person there is thinking he's talking about the temple, like the physical structure, Herod's temple. And they're thinking that's insane. So I mean, just a little historic background. Herod had hired over 10,000 artisans to work on Herod's temple at once. And 1,500 were priests that were specially trained to do all the inside work. Because they realized, like, you can't just have anybody working on the inner sanctuary of these places. So 1,500 priests trained to do this work. And they'd been working for four and a half decades and Jesus is like, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. And of course, that's, that's foolish. If you're talking about the physical temple, one guy is not going to do in three days or three lifetimes what 10,000 workers did in four and a half decades. But Jesus wasn't talking about Herod's temple. And this is the riddle. So look at verse, verse 21. It says, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And I find this fascinating that when they say, by what authority do you do this? You know, Jesus could have said, by what authority do I do this? By what authority do I do this? I'm the Messiah. And this is my house. And I'll do what I want in my house. I mean, it's like if somebody came to your house and just knocked on the door and come in and they're like, well, I don't, I don't like the way you've decorated. It's kind of messy. By what authority do you do this? And you're like, I pay the mortgage. That's what? And Jesus could have said something like that. I pay the mortgage. This is my place. But instead, it's this riddle. Destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, by what authority do I throw you out of the temple? When you kill me, because that's what he's saying. Destroy this temple of my body. When you kill me, I will rise in three days. That's my authority. And that's all you need to know right now. 
And that brings us to point four, which I call the ruin and resurrection of Jesus. Because here's a little spoiler for you. This incident is the beginning of the end for Jesus. Even though John locates it at the very beginning of his earthly ministry, this is already the beginning of the end. So Richard talked last week about Jesus' first sign miracle, or maybe probably his first miracle period, where he turned water into wine at a wedding. And you know what? Nobody was outraged about that. Most people didn't even know that he had done it, but the few that did were not like, this is crazy. Like, what, by what authority do you? They're just like, holy smokes, that's awesome. That's really cool. Like, you must have this creative power either from God or you are God. Or, but we're, we're sitting up and we're paying attention. But when he goes into the holiest site of Judaism and flies off the handle at Passover, it rubs some really powerful, really important people the wrong way. And people are starting to get outraged at the outrage of Jesus. It's not an overstatement to say, by the way, because Jesus did stuff like this, he got himself killed. Just in a purely human perspective. Because he did stuff like that. And he just didn't care. Is it offending people? Is it hurting people's feelings? Are people getting mad? It got him killed. That's why John quotes Psalm 69.9 here. You don't know that, but I'm telling you that. Verse 17 his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And I'll tell you, I've read this verse for a lot of years and here's how I read it. When Jesus comes, he is gonna be so zealous for the house of God. Like he's gonna be consumed with passion for the house of God. He's gonna love the house of God. He's gonna be captivated by the house of God. He's gonna be enamored with the house of God and he's gonna fight to protect it because he loves it so much. You know, like we say, someone's consumed with a hobby or consumed with a new dating relationship. Um, the only problem is as I, as I look into this, that's not what this verse means at all. So when you read consumed in John 2 in the Greek language or when you read consumed in Psalm 69.9 in Hebrew, both of those words consumed only mean to devour or to destroy. David, writing all those years earlier in Psalm 69, is saying the Messiah's earnest concern, his holy zeal for the house of God is going to kill him. And this happens, and people turn on Jesus, and they kill him. And they're like, why? Because he was consumed with love for the house of God. And they destroyed him. But his destruction isn't the end of the story, is it? Because even in Jesus' riddle, he's foreshadowing. He says, essentially what he's saying is, you will destroy me, and in three days, I will rise again. Never to be destroyed. So, so notice verse 22 here. And I love that. So John's giving this perspective of like he's all these years later, this old wise guy who's processed a lot of things for a lot of years. He shared this story a lot of ways for a lot of years, led a lot of people to Christ. And he's reflecting on this and he inserts all these parentheticals. And verse 22 is one of those. He says, when therefore he was raised from the dead. So three years later, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
Okay, what are they remembering? They're remembering that the day that he went nuts in the temple, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise again. And they have no idea. They, they thought like everybody else, he's talking about the big massive stones, you know, the 80 ton stones and destroy it and I'll rebuild it. And they're like, nah, that ain't happening. And he dies and he comes back three days later and John says, and the disciples are like, ah, that's what he was saying. That's what David was saying in the scripture. Okay, so let's start putting this all together for this last point. Jesus knew that the temple was the place in that culture, in that, in that era, where sinners could be reconciled to God through the offering of a spotless sacrifice. So he stood up to anything that got in the way of salvation. That's another way of looking at it. You want to get in the way of that transaction of people just simply come and receive free grace. And it's not about an exchange of money. You're not buying something from God. He just says, I've done it for you. Just repent and believe the gospel. He's against anything that stands in the way of that. But at the same time, he's saying, I am the true temple. And one day, sinners will be reconciled to God, not by coming to the Passover and buying these sacrifices and in faith, offering them to Yahweh. One day, sinners will be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of my life. An innocent lamb laying down his life for the sake of his people and he's saying, you will kill me, but in killing me, you're only going to accomplish what my plan was from the beginning. And what was that plan? It's the final point, the reconciliation of Jesus. See, right here at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus is fighting to restore the picture and the purpose of the temple. He's saying, Jews for generations have ruined this picture. And they've undermined its very purpose of existence. And so to use a hockey analogy, because we are a hockey family, Jesus goes into the holy site of Judaism on the highest feast, and he drops gloves. What happens in hockey if you're just skating along, you're playing your game, and all of a sudden you stop and you drop your gloves? You're saying, let's go. Let's get it on. Because I'm sick and tired of this stuff that you're doing when the ref's back is turned and I'm just gonna knock you out. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's going into the temple and he's dropping gloves and just saying, let's go, let's, let's have at it. This is why I came. This is why I came. And I think it all happened on Jesus' time, don't get me wrong, but he's showing them right here, why did I come? Because you have put up barriers to broken children coming home to their father and I'm done with it. The barriers are coming down. And I'm going to do everything through the sacrifice of myself to let these kids come home to their father. By the way, our, our relationship with God is ruined by sin. We need a savior. But we're all like those Gentiles in Jesus' day where if we're coming, we can only come so far. And it's like, even if you understood Jesus and you understood his sacrifice and you wanted to get to him on your own, you, you couldn't do it unless Jesus came and took down the barriers and got the mess out of the way and invited you to come and say, through me, you can come. Through me, through my blood, through the sacrifice in my body, which we'll celebrate in a few moments, you can come. Okay, so what? 
Let me just close with a couple quick application thoughts. So what? First thing I want to say is just, family, read the Bible over and over and over again and let it, let it shape the way you think about Jesus. As Richard shared one of these last week, which is so beautiful. You, I mean, you see, whoa, what happened, Jesus? And why are these two stories back to back? You're this fun guy at a party with dancing and there's wedding and there's wine and there's feasting. And, there's like, oh, this. and some of you do not picture Jesus in that kind of environment. You know, we had a wedding here last night and many of you were here from church and you were like, wow, I've never seen a space like this. Anything different than just church on Sunday. This is, this is really cool. This is really fun. And it is. And I don't know if Jesus is more like me. I'm introverted. I'm not like on the dance floor letting people know how you dance because I, I don't. Uh, but I love it for the rest of you. I'm more like, I'm the introvert. You like stand around the side of the room and you, you really, I love people. So I hope someone comes up and talks to me, but I'm not like gregarious in the party. Like I'm the guy, like you gotta, you know, I'll lead, I'll lead that dance. I know how that goes, right? And I don't know what Jesus' personality was like, but he was there. And I think he loved scenes like that of rejoicing. And this picture of, I mean, marriage is a picture of the father or, or the Christ's love for his church, for his bride and pursuing her and chasing her down and washing her clean and bringing her home and blessing her with all of his inheritance forever. So I think Jesus loves stuff like that. But, but big picture is not just this one story of Jesus gets angry, Jesus offends people. You know how many times Jesus ran people off on purpose. If your view of Jesus doesn't include a holistic, real, historic Jesus, my encouragement is just, just, just keep reading the word. Just keep getting in the word and being like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know about that. Or I don't like that. But why did I not like that? Second practical thing is this question. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? And don't pretend like the answer is nothing because you're human. And by the way, now, now you know from this story that part of being made in the image of God is anger. Anger doesn't always have to be wicked or selfish because Jesus was angry and he was never wicked and he was never selfish. But what outrages you? And, and, and I mean, makes your blood boil. Not that you would braid a whip, not that you would throw ice on the floor and pretend like it's coins because this is easier to clean up and no one's going to steal it. But... I'll bet your emotions change instantly over something. And your words express outrage over something. And I'll just ask you to stop and think about what that is because that's revealing what you love. Here's what I mean. I'll give you a silly example and then a more serious example because I know the first one will be really hard to believe because I know today as I present, I'm super gracious and mild-mannered, right? But as a child, I was a sore loser, I was hyper competitive and I had to win everything. Once I finally got my own bedroom, I had a poster on the back of my door that said, whoever said winning isn't everything, obviously never won anything. Because winning was everything. Being the best, succeeding, being better than. I love that. And I'll tell you over and over and over again, that was a very unhealthy, ungodly trigger in my life. Okay, but contrast, serious example. Why am I angry when I see someone shooting up or doing fentanyl off foil and going into that slouch and crumpling on the sidewalk and having to administer Narcan? 
Why do I get angry when I see the guys out here and I know they're Winnebago's and I know they're trucks and they're distributing deadly drugs out of their trucks and vans? They're pimping out little girls. Why do I get angry at that? And there's probably something unrighteous about my anger in that too, but I think I can honestly say, because I look at that and I just think, you are hurting yourself. And you are hurting, you are intentionally for profit destroying other people made in the image of God. But how are those people ever supposed to come home to the father who loves them and meets them in their brokenness if they're so blitzed out of their mind that they don't even know who Jesus is? And it makes me angry. And my follow-up question is simply, are you angered by the same kinds of things that angered Jesus? Because if you're not, if you're either angered about other stuff or if you're the kind of person that's just like, oh, I'm, I'm that inclusive, inclusive, tolerant person, but, but not in a healthy way of using those words. Because if you're like, I don't get angry, at I just want to be kind and nice, then you're not kind or nice. Because you got to get mad at something. You got to care about something enough. You got to love something enough to say, this garbage has to go. Not in this house, not on this street. I hope that makes sense. What makes you angry? Next, are you living each day as if you've been reconciled to the Father? Jesus goes to all these links. He makes a ruckus to say, what's important to me? Broken kids coming home to their father. So are you living in the reality of that? Are you going through the day and just being like, well, I'm not as good as these other Christians I know. And I just have this, I have this nagging sense that God is just always disappointed with me, that he's displeased with me. Stop. Stop. He's not that kind of father. Like, yes, don't get me wrong. You, you, can, you can, in a sense, break his heart, to use human terminology, by your sin. But as you're walking in repentance and faith, and you're like, I'm not everything I want to be, and I'm not everything I should be or could be, but I'm, I'm walking with you, God. And when I fall down, I confess my sin, and I get back up. God's not sitting there like, bitch, you could always do better. I see you made a 97% on your math test, but you could, why didn't you get 100%? I don't think he's that kind of father because Jesus goes to these massive links, the cost of his own life to bring you home and to let you know you're loved and accepted in him. So what would it look like for you to lift your head high and simultaneously embrace the confidence that comes with knowing I'm reconciled to the father and the humility that comes from knowing I am reconciled to the father. And then finally, what is hindering people from being reconciled to the father today? And I mean, you can look at the church culture. You can look at our broader culture. You'd be wise to look at your own life. Is there something that I'm doing that is potentially sending the wrong message that is preventing people from being reconciled to God? And as Paul later says, you church, plural you, you are ministers of reconciliation. God is making his appeal through you. Be reconciled to God. I don't know what dumping your tables look like, but you got to celebrate the things that God celebrates. And you got to get worked up over the things that God gets worked up over. And you got to get, you got to do both those things enough to care to actually unbrick the bricks and take something down and remove something or say, God, change my own tone or change my own words or change my own heart so that I'm not hindering people from coming to you and being reconciled. So all that is Jesus showing us when and why love gets angry. Love gets angry 
when people can't make it to God because of the stupidity, the selfishness, the greed, or the religiosity, or any other thing of anyone. And Jesus wants it removed. And he wants it removed bad enough to be outraged at the things that keep children from coming home. You just listened to a recording of a sermon from Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope you can join us in person soon. Thanks for listening. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.